my heart. First of all, Angel Tree. This is for children who one or both of their parents are incarcerated. And so their parents are in prison and they're probably not going to get anything for Christmas. And, and through um, a prison uh, fellowship, the, the ministry that Chuck Colson started years ago, um, they disciple these parents, they work with these parents, and then one of the things they do is, is they get the kids' names and they get us to get two gifts, reasonably priced, two gifts. There's a limit on what you pay, and they, and they, and they make, take note of that. Uh, one is an article of clothing, and one is something, uh, <laughs> something they want, right? <laughs> Isn't that the way it is with Christmas, right? <laughs> oh, a tie, another tie. I don't wear ties. Um, so, so that's what happens, and, and for some of these kids, that's all they're going to get for Christmas. This is a huge thing. And then what happens is Chuck Colson Ministry follows this up. These kids are offered mentoring, kind of like a big brother, big sister thing. These kids are offered a week at camp in the summertime. We're just part of a giant program that is going on to minister to these kids, but every part is essential. So I want to encourage you that in a, in a couple of weeks, we'll be telling you, you can pick up names and, and, and all the, everything that's involved with getting those presents. I encourage you on that. The second thing is Arizona. We, we started going to Arizona on the Navajo reservation in a very hostile atmosphere. I mean, it's just that racially, it's a very hostile atmosphere because of everything that has been done to Navajos, to American Indians in the past, and the things that are still being done. There's still stuff happening that is just detrimental to Native Americans. It's still ongoing. It's just tragic. And we have come in and we have made friends at a little town called Gap and at a little church called Hidden Springs Bible Church. And now Bill and Grace have moved there. They're a part of the community. We get to do things that no one else, I'm telling you, no one else can do on the reservation. There is no other part of that reservation where in their, uh, in their chapter house, which has a lot of religious implications, we go and have a service, a Christmas service. That's just unheard of. Other Navajos tell us all the time, we don't know what you did, but it's an amazing thing. And so we have an incredible ministry to these Navajos, um, and, and we're sending out some people. And what we've done, we've done this every year. We give them a, a she's, I know my daughter mentioned that, but we give them a gift bag. And it's with stuff like school supplies and a little toy and things like this. And it's the same thing. This may be the only gift they get for most of them. So we give them that. We, we give a meal for the little town. We invite them to a service where for many of them, they've never heard the gospel this way. They've never experienced what is so simple and easy for us. And, and we give them a meal and we give them a little gift. And so this, this is a huge thing. The people who are going, they take care of their airfare, their food, van rental, all that stuff. They take care of that. We are not raising funds for that. We're simply... Uh, if you designate funds to AZ December, it is simply going to the gifts, the school supplies, the meal, that, that, that stuff. So if you would be interested in that, you can see Reagan right up front afterwards. Um, we encourage you to think about it and be praying about it and uh, possibly consider giving. All right. Um, also, if you're interested in Urbana, there are flyers on the back tables that you can, you can pick up and get some information from. We are in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 to 17. Two weeks ago, I was gone last week, two weeks ago, we dove into those three verses. Today, we're going to go a little deeper. One of, um, and, and this gets a little bit more um, difficult. It gets a little bit more edgy. It, it pushed, this is going to push you, uh, hopefully it pushed me as I was studying for it, a little bit more. 
One of the things that I firmly believe in teaching and preaching is I just want to teach the truth. I just want the truth. I don't want anything else. I don't want, you to, I don't want to give you my opinions. I want to give you what the truth is. What does the Word of God say and how best can we interpret it? That's what I want to be about because everything else, I don't want to hear uh, and I don't want to give and I don't want to hear stuff about how, oh, you know, we'll, we'll make your life the happiest life possible or, or God, I, I just don't want to do that stuff. I really want to say, what is the truth? What does God say about us and about our lives and about living for him? So I want to read to you 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, does not come, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God, the woman who does the will of God, lives forever. Right? So, three weeks ago, we went over something very important because it sets the stage for what John is talking about. We talked about we have a secure position. We talked about we have a power that is within us through Christ. And we talked about we have this relationship with God. And then two weeks ago, we started off looking at this. Do not love the world. Why? Because of what it is, because of who we are, because of what it costs us, because of what it offers and because of how long it lasts. So now as we dig a little deeper, I want you to see the first point we're gonna talk about. There's just two points here, and it's on your sheet. You can see it on your sheet. First of all, identifying worldliness. How do I spot it in my life? And that comes from verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in, here, in him. And we're gonna spend some time here. Because, because two weeks ago we talked about this word world and how is it interpreted in this passage. And it's this idea of, uh, uh, of this world system, this value system that's going all around us that, that tells us what we're supposed to value and what we're not supposed to value, that tells us what is important and what is not important. And some Christians... Um, have taken this and they've kind of run with it. They've taken up this idea of, well, then what we need to do is we need to withdraw. We need to withdraw from the world. We need to separate. Do not associate. We need to start, you know, like a monastery or something way out in the desert so we're away from everyone. Why? So that we can just worship God. And they, and they get into this idea. Now, this is... Um, this is what they would call asceticism. It's also a part of something they were struggling in that time, which is called dualism. And that is this idea that the spirit inside me is good, but this fleshly matter is bad. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, I quoted from uh, Star Wars with Yoda, and I had a number of you come up. Somebody came up, people came up and just say, how, how often did you practice that Yoda voice? And I was like, <laughs> it's natural for me. Just natural, yeah. So spirit is good, but matter the flesh, those types of, that's bad. And what is that? That's dualism. And how can Christians do that today? We can subtly fall into this idea of asceticism or dualism. It comes, it comes in ways you can see it sometimes. Maybe uh, oftentimes Christians who don't want to have anything to do with social action or community involvement. Or they begin to differentiate between the sacred and the secular like, they don't always say it, but oftentimes it can be said sort of subtly, you know? Oh, you want to serve God? Well, then you have to leave your secular job and go into full-time Christian ministry. As if God looks at people's work and goes, oh, that's secular, and that's, you know, that's spiritual. And that's not how God, and I assured you, 
two weeks ago. There's, there's just as much problems and difficulties and issues here at 410 Flannery O'Connor at First Church Ministries and working here as there are at the shipyard or as there are wherever you are, seeing wherever you are. And so what happens? Christians begin to subtly fall into dualism when they differentiate between sacred, sacred and secular. The other thing is there, there can be sometimes a negativity towards art and cultural things unless they, are, unless they have this obvious and overt Christian message or they're done by a Christian. I've run into people all the time. I don't listen to anything except what was written by a Christian. I don't read any books except what was written by a Christian. I don't look at any. And, and what happens? That, that's dualism. You're beginning to differentiate, and that's a, that's a dangerous way to go. And Paul speaks this directly in the book of Colossians. Uh, I want you to see this on the screen. Colossians 2, 20 to 23. First of all, he says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, all right, he's talking about that world system, why, as though you still belong to it? Do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. And then 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And what is he saying there? He's saying, he's saying look, this world, not the physical world of animals and trees, he's saying this value system, this mindset that's based on presuppositions of what is important and what's of a value, and he says, this, this is all, it's wrong, it's got it wrong. He says, they're gonna tell you, they're basic principles, and they're gonna give you rules. Why do we like rules? Because they're measurable. You know, I, 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 can, I can, one, two, three, I can get it, especially if there's not many of them. And so what happens? He's saying these regulations have an appearance of wisdom. They look good. They look good. They make sense sometimes. But they have this self-imposed worship. They have this false humility. They involve harsh treatment of the body. And they lack any value in restraining. They don't change you from the inside out. That's why we have to be careful. I believe fasting is something God wants us to do. At certain, it's between you and God how often you fast. But always understand, you are not fasting to earn favor with God. You are not fasting to look better with God. Fasting should be something that helps you focus on him. Every time you feel that hunger, you go, ah, I need to pray. Ah, I need. Okay, it becomes a tool. It's not something that makes you more spiritual. We have to be careful about that. Because as Christians, we see the supernatural. I talked about this earlier. We see the eternal. Only when we see the world from the perspective of eternity can we see the world correctly. Because when we view from an eternal perspective, what we do is we put things in their rightful place. Your money gets put in the right place. Your body gets put in the right place. Your work gets put in the right place. Your sex life gets put in the right place. All of these things, <clears throat> all of these visible things, they get put in the right place when they're viewed in light of eternity. And they're good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. So when you see something, as you look at these things in your life and you realize maybe that's something I'm really living for, 
Now you've gotten into worldliness. We're talking about that now. How do we identify worldliness? So here, John gives us three categories of worldliness. In verse 16, he tells us the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Now, we've used for a long time the 1984 NIV, and and it has been updated, but I'm just using it because that's what we always use. But there are some changes that, that it has not, this isn't as good of a translation as I'd hoped it'd be on this one. When he says the cravings of sinful man or the lust of his eyes, remember that's that word, epithumia. And uh, I think I got it on, yeah, there it is. Over desire. Epi is epic, huge, great. Thumia is a strong desire. And so it's adding a greatness onto a strong desire. We use that word. You know, when there's an earthquake and they go to where ground zero is for the earthquake, the absolute most powerful spot of the earthquake, what do they call it? Epicenter, right? Same, that's that word, epi. It's the epicenter, the greatest center, the most powerful center. Maximum intensity. So when he says epithumia, he's talking about this maximum intensity of desire. Everywhere in your Bible where you read lust, it's epithumia. It's not necessarily sexual. It's a powerful desire. So you can have an epithumia for food. I do sometimes. Many times. A lot of the time. And so what is it? It's an over-desire. And so we have here the over-desire of the sinful man. In our, in our translation here, when he says that, uh, the, over, the cravings of the sinful man, that's simply, that's simply the body, the flesh, the over-desire of the body or the flesh. Sinful or not, if it's a, it can be a good thing, but if it's an over-desire, it's causing problems. It's taking a position it doesn't, it's not supposed to be in. Over-desire of the eyes, that's basically what he's saying. And the third one he mentions is the boastful pride of life. And he uses that word bios, that's the physical life. And, and it, it's not just the eating and drinking, it's, it's everything about me physically, my ego, every part of me. And then what happens when we have that over-desire? Normal things become the most important thing. They lose their proper place. We see that sometimes. I mean, we even say that. Sometimes you'll say to somebody, oh, sorry, I got all caught up in it. I kind of lost my head. What happened? What are we saying when we say something like that? I got all caught up in it, and I kind of lost my head. It took a greater position in my life. It took a greater power in my life than it normally would. That's an over-desire. So, He gives us the three. First one on your sheet, A, the lust of the body, the cravings of sinful man, he says. And and that is in verse 16. You see it there. Physical things like food and drink. There's nothing wrong with food and drink. But we, we need to remind ourselves, we eat to live. We don't live to eat. We have a need to eat and drink. But when we live for them, They take a place that they do not belong. They take an importance they do not belong. When we live for them, then what happens is food becomes a strategy for coping with life, like an eating disorder. We use overeating or use lack of eating to handle the situations in our life. That's an over-desire. It becomes an epithumia, and it dominates us. 
Or take the idea of, I mean, that's big in our culture, rest and recreation. Our culture, I was reading an article not so long ago, our culture is, is they were saying, is frantically driven to have fun. And the explosion in the leisure industry has been unprecedented in the last 60 or 70 years or so. No one predicted this. And this gets at the heart of the difference between someone who loves the world like God loves the world, the people, the hearts, the broken lives, and worldliness, and that is loving the system, loving the things of the system. We have to be able to have one and not the other. That's important. And people in our day are becoming more and more addicted to play and to rest and to pleasure. Why? One of the interesting things this article is bringing out is the reason why is people are more and more unfulfilled than they ever have been, as far as they can tell. And they were saying that one of the biggest things is people are unfulfilled at work. Now, work will always be somewhat unfulfilling because of sin. But work can be a powerful thing in your life. And you can choose a job, especially as we get, you know, we have so many young people here, you're, you're in the beginnings of this. You can choose a job in a way that loves the world and honors the world and loves God and glorifies Him. Or you can choose your job in a way that loves the system. And this is what you have to, you have to grapple with. Because people will turn... They'll be unfulfilled in their jobs, so they turn to leisure to, to, to fill up the em emptiness in their lives. They live for the weekend. They live to play. It's an epi-desire, an over-desire. Because he tells us the world and its desires, they're passing away. They're in the process of leaving. So it will never satisfy because it's on the downward slope. It's getting less and less and less. And so it will never satisfy, but it will demand more. And it will become bigger and bigger and demand better and better. And your week will get duller and duller as you look forward to those weekends. It's like, uh, I like those cheese balls. You know, those little cheese balls. Especially, there's some that are just cheap. I, I was going to say they're cheesy, but they're cheap and they're not very good. But some, if you get some good ones, man, that's like crack for me. I tell you, I pop a few of those, and they just crunch, and they're cheesy, and it's just like there's just air in it, you know? So it's just like it's not that much. You don't feel like you're eating that much. You go, man, I just ate 50, but that, I'm not full. But they're a little bit salty. If you've ever studied anything, I did one time I had to do a paper <clears throat> on, on, on how the food industry makes food. Let me tell you something. The food industry is manipulating every one of us. It's all about the crunch and it's all about a little bit of salt. Because studies show you get a little bit of salt, you get a little thirsty. You drink a little bit, you go, I'll eat a little more. And it's, ah, oh, crunch, nice, nice, nice. I'm a little thirsty. I'll eat a little more. And before you know it, that big thing, it's gone. Gone in one night, gone. Not that that's ever happened to me, but that's what's going on with those things. There's nothing to them, but they make you want more. Because they give you a little bit, it's like a little bit of flavor rush. You're like, man, that's good. And you go, you go, look, I got 80 and run out. You know, you can do that. That's what happens. This is what he's saying. This is what the world is. This is how it works. I want more. I want more. I want more. And it's less and less satisfying. So I got to have even more. And so people who live for the weekend and they live for these big events in their lives, it has to be bigger. 
It has to be bigger. I knew some, there were some kids who lived near us, and they, their parents took them to Disney World. And then the next year, they said, we're not going to Disney World. We're just going to go camping somewhere. And the kids were like, what? <laughs> what? We want something better than Disney World. Why? Because once you get, you get more, more. This is what happens. It can happen to us. And it happens in all facets of our lives. One big facet of our life is sex. Yep, I'm going to go there. I hate going there, but I'm going to go there. And as Christians, we're supposed to view sex from the perspective of eternity, not in a worldly way. And biblically, sex is a picture of something. It's an analogy of the ultimate intimate relationship that we will have in heaven. It's a picture. It's a signpost of this complete oneness that someday will be ours with God. Why? Because, because in an intimate, physical relationship, first of all, you're very open and vulnerable. Neither one of you have clothes on. You're open and vulnerable. And, and, and you, you, you find, if, you do, if it's right, if it's done the way God, someone who will love you in spite of everything, in spite of everything about you, someone who will say, I love you anyways. I love you. A person who will love you in spite of the fact that they know you. And so when we look at it from the perspective of eternity, we can see why God puts boundaries. Why does God say only in the context of marriage? That seems so restrictive. But he's saying this is a picture. This is a signpost of something. This intimacy with me. And God's, God pours out his love for us. He makes himself vulnerable. And then he says, but you want to worship other idols at the same time? No. It only works. It only works with mutual, total commitment. That's the only way it works. That's why he says, this is how I want it. Because he says, this is what it's made for. This is what it points to. And so we view it through the lens of eternity rather than the lens of this world. It is impossible to have oneness with someone who refuses to have oneness with you. As much as you may want it, it will not happen if you don't have another person that's willing. It can't happen. The other thing is, looking at sex from the eternal point of view demotes it. In our culture, if you're not having sex, you're not fulfilled. You can't be happy. The Bible teaches sex is good, but it's not the key to happiness or fulfillment. God is. God is the key. And even when sex is done right, the way God wants it to be done, it's still not the key. It simply points to him. Because we tend to define ourselves in these, in in these types of things. This is what has happened in our culture. We define ourselves by these things, these artificial things that our, that our society, our culture, the value system that they put up. And God says, don't define yourself that way. So we have this first one. As we identify the, uh, identify the worldliness in our lives, the lust of the body, the second one is the lust of the eyes. And that, again, is in verse 16. And he's saying there's this over-desire of the eye. What does the eye see? The eye simply sees the, the things on the outside, the things that are visible to you, just the surface of things. The eye sees money. 
The eye sees status. The eye sees name. The eye sees clothing. The eye sees my figure. The eye sees all these things. And, and these are the things then that can control me because of that. And they, they can become idols. The eye sees them and they become idols. Probably the most prevalent form of idolatry in the U.S. is, is, uh, is shown by this, this picture. Amen? <laughs> okay, let's go, we'll go back to the scripture. That was just so easy. I had to do it. The Redskins are playing the Cowboys today, and I just thought that I'd just stake my ground. And uh, if you're a Cowboy fan, I, it's all in fun. It's all in fun. We forgive you. Um, um, what I, uh, you, know, you know, when you say some things, there's the low-shelf stuff that's just so easy, and then there's the higher-shelf stuff that are harder to do. And I just go for the low-shelf every time. I don't know why I do that. The lust of the eyes. What does it say? It's saying looks are paramount. But Christians are supposed to look beneath the surface of things. And money's a part of this. When, when we look at this world through the lens of eternity, we handle our money differently. Now think about that. Because this, I know, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like this kind of stuff. Because it makes me think about how I handle my money. But if I look at this world through the lens of eternity, I will handle my money differently because it is not so important as this world says it is. When I look at this world through the lens of eternity, when I look at this world the way God looks at this world, suddenly my money is not so important anymore and I am, I am more apt to give. And I'm more apt to give gladly rather than grudgingly. But if I spend all, if you spend all your money on this world, on leisure, on comforts, on clothing, on me, me, me. You may say you're a Christian, but you're living as if this world is all there is. And that's worldly. All right, so there's a lust of the eyes. The next one is the pride of life. The boasting of what he has and does, that's the pride of life. Ancient writers often made lists, and typically it was in an ascending order, and we see this a lot of times in the biblical record. And I think this is one example of that. Each thing gets progressively worse. Now, it's not just that I think this. I see this. In, in Proverbs 6, we see, we see God talking about seven things he hates, and it tends to move in an ascending order. In, in, um, with Jesus, you know, who did he criticize the most? He criticized the Pharisees, who were the most moral people at that time, at least as far as they could see. They were very moral. They were givers. They made sure they gave exactly what God told them to give. They did all of these things. But here, and, and my point in this is simply this, they were moral, they were decent, and they were full of pride, and he criticized them for this. And here when we see the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, what we're seeing is this order gets greater, and we tend to flip it, right? We tend to think, oh, the lust of the body, that's the worst. And God says, you know what? The boastful pride of life, that's what I think is the worst. Gossip and jealousy and backbiting and always getting your feelings hurt. These were the things, this John says this is the worst. Solomon in Proverbs says this is the worst. Jesus says this is the worst. 
These are the people I criticize the most. And so we have this pride of life. And I think there's, there's kind of three areas that, that come to me. There's, I'm, I know there's more. But there's the pride of recognition. Being recognized for something. Being thanked. Making sure people notice me. Making sure people see who I am and understand how important I am. There's the pride of power. I want to be in charge. I want to make the rules. There's the pride, very closely to that is the pride of control. No one tells me what to do. I'm not going to give up my rights and my needs for other people. And this is what makes pride so dangerous because it's not easily seen. We can fake it. Because pride can make you behave in a moral way. If you think, yes, that's the way people should behave, and then you behave that way, you feel proud of yourself for it, what's happened? Pride has gotten into the mix of why I'm behaving myself in the right, right way. And so this is, why, this is why I think he thinks this is, this is the most deceitful and deadly of them. And so we have these three things that he lists in, in this verse. And finally, we get to how does this change occur? Okay, this is that next point on your list, on your sheet. I put it down as three. I don't know why. It's listed as three. Somehow this point got lost or something. How does change occur? What do I do about it? Say, okay, Bob, I'm seeing some of these things. I'm seeing how worldliness so easily can, can slip into my life. So what do I do? Now, a part of this question being answered is going to be the whole rest of the book. John's going to delve into this in many ways. But just briefly, I want you to see something real quick. Worldliness is like that old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah? But worldliness is also saying, because I'm looking for love in all the wrong places, I'm, also, I'm saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't think you can take care of me. We sing you're a good God, but my life experience hasn't been quite living up to what I'm singing. And so I don't trust you. And so that's what happens. And so here in this passage, what I think is very interesting is John has been coming all along and he's been focusing on the love of God and he's been focusing on obedience. In, in verse 17, he says, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. In verse 15, it's not on, this, on the screen, but in verse 15 he says, hey, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father. He's been concentrating on the love of the Father, and he's been concentrating on this concept of obedience. He's talked about this. It's a theme that we see in John's writings. And so this gives us a clue as to what he thinks is very important if we're not going to fall into worldliness. The love of the Father and obedience. Those two go hand in hand. Love and obedience. One leads to the other. When my children were little and they would disobey me, it hurt me way more than when the neighbor's kids disobeyed. Like if I said to one of the neighbor's kids, hey, get out of my lawn, and the kid goes, no. I'm like, oh, whatever, I don't care. You know? <laughs> You're not my kid. But when my kids disobeyed me, it crushed me. It crushed me. Why? Why did it crush me? Because I have loved that child for years. I've changed that kid's diapers. I fed that kid when that kid couldn't feed himself or herself. And I loved them deeply. And I sacrificed. You guys who are parents, you know what happens, right? You know this. Your life gets put on hold for 30 years. 
is that you, you don't get to do the things you want to do. You know, when our kids were younger, every once in a while I'd be looking at stuff and I'd go, oh, vacation to Ireland. I'd love to do it. What do we do with the kids? Oh, crap. Forget it. Not going. Too much money. It changed. I, things I could have done, I couldn't do for the sake of my kids. I did all that for the sake of my kids because I loved them dearly. And it wasn't like when they disobeyed me, it was like, why do you do this to me after all? Your mother, you should... Blah, blah. No, it's not that. It's because I wanted what was best for them. That's why I don't regret putting my life on hold for 30 years. I don't regret it. It's just a fact of what's involved in loving someone and loving kids so when they disobey me, it would break my heart because I could feel like they're, they're going the wrong way. This is the wrong thing for them. And it wasn't so much I was just so angry, it was that it grieved me. Because I would tell them, man, I love you. When my oldest son was a teenager and we were struggling with him at the time, I sat him down and I said, look, dude, here's the deal. I don't make up rules because I like making up rules. I set things up because I love you. Now, you may think they're stupid, and that's okay if you think they're stupid. And if you say it appropriately, you can tell me that you don't think it's right. Just don't use the word stupid, but you can tell me if you don't think it's right. But I just want you to know, I do it because I love you. And when I annoy you like crazy with some of this stuff, just keep in the back of your head, it's only because I love you. And he looked at me, he goes, I can work with that. And I was like, you better work. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm telling you, it, it changed some. Our relationship changed because he understood. And, and this is that thing. When we begin to focus on the Father's love for us, how much the Father loves us. When we realize, and this is so important, we talk about it all the time, but when we realize, I can't change me. I can't do this. I need God. And so I focus on him, and I focus on the Father's love for me, and what he's done for me, and how he's demonstrated that love so many times over. We sang, we sang, come thou fount. Uh, we sang, here I raise my Eben, mine Ebenezer. And I know I've talked about it, so some of you know it, but some of you don't. What is an Ebenezer? When I first heard that song, I thought it was a nose or something, you know. And then I realized, no, a nose is a proboscis, so what is an Ebenezer? And here's what it is. It's simply a memorial to something, a reminder. And he says, hither by thy help I've come. What is he saying? He's saying, this reminds me of how you helped me in the past. And so I've created this. We do this. We, we do this all the time. We go on vacation. What do we do? We take pictures. We take videos. And then we go to people and obnoxiously tell them, you got to look at this. Look at our awesome vacation. And the people with little kids who can't do those vacations go, man, I don't want to see your stupid vacation, man. <laughs> you know? And so what we, we sang that. Excuse me. Because that's a part of that great biblical, we see it all through the Bible where God says, remember, 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 remember. Over and over and over, God tells us, remember what I've done for you. Remember what my son has done. Remember where you saw the spirit work. Remember, remember, remember. What are those? Those are Ebenezer's. Those are memorials that we remember. And he tells us, you've got to remember like that. And when I remember what God has done for me, when I remember his love for me, 
And I rehearse and I think, and I think of how that will impact me in the future. And I think of it in light of eternity that I have this incredible gift that's coming that will make this all seem like an instant that's insignificant. Then it changes me. I go, this God, I want to obey him. By his spirit, I will obey. And when we think about of the Father's love for us, it casts out the love of the world. It will free you from the need to be noticed. It will free you from the need to be in charge. It will free you from the need to be right all the time. It will free you from the need to be in control. Change occurs when we begin to focus on the love of the Father. And then obedience flows from that. And John is gonna develop this further, but I want you to see that as we leave today, This is what is so, he tells us, this is what worldliness is. This is how we recognize it. It's an over-desire. It's something that's gotten out of control. It's something that's gotten larger than it should. And it can be anything, it can be something terrible. It can be something good. Your family can become an epithumia. If it gets larger and out of control of of its importance in in my life and the life and this world. And when I begin to focus on the love of the Father, his great love for me, and how he's shown it in so many ways, and how he will show it, he promises in the future, then obedience flows. It comes, not because I've worked it up. It's the natural outflow of being loved so deeply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, word. We thank you for these verses. They, they, can, they can grip us. They can shake us. They can show us where we're wandering and where we've gone astray. But also, God, they, they encourage us because your great love casts out the love of this world. Perfect love, you tell us, casts out fear. It tells us who we are in your eyes. It tells us what the truth is. And, Father, as we focus on your love, we begin to see this world in light of eternity. And the things of this world grow smaller and dimmer in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, help us to live that this week. As we leave this place, Lord, help us to see people the way you see people, to love them the way you love them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up an offering as they come forward. Well, again, I want to say, if, if, if you're visiting, if you're a guest here, please don't feel pressured to give. That is not what we're about. We're glad you're here.